Welcome to Unaffordable, a podcast about affordability solutions in Boulder County, brought to you by Boulder Weekly and KGNU. I'm your host, Caitlin Elizabeth Rocket. The secret's out. Boulder, Colorado is beautiful, progressive, walkable, safe, and increasingly unaffordable. But Boulder's not alone in its affordability crisis. The need for reliable, affordable housing outweighs supply in cities across the U.S. All over the country, legislators, nonprofit organizations, city planners, housing advocates, and regular people are searching for answers. Unsurprisingly, discussions about affordable housing can be confusing, with numerous programs, funding sources, and strategies involved. The amount of bureaucracy on federal, state, and local levels can be intimidating, both for those who need affordable housing and for those in the community concerned about it. But as we've heard over and over in our reporting, there's no one-size-fits-all solution to the affordability crisis. There are many facets that cause unaffordability, even more problems that can arise from it, and no one solution capable of fixing the entire problem. In each episode of Unaffordable, we'll present an interview with someone involved in affordability solutions, from design to homeowners association costs, to transportation access and more. This is just one person's opinion on one aspect covered in our written series, which you can find at boulderweekly.com. In the first episode of Unaffordable, my colleague Angela Evans covered the basics, the programs, policies, and strategies local jurisdictions are currently using to increase affordable housing across Boulder County. But what should affordable housing look like? Limited by financing, zoning, and public perception, simply building affordable housing is tough. So can it be beautiful? And more importantly, can the design of affordable housing contribute to a better quality of life or even economic mobility? To discuss this, I'm talking with Carrie McCarowitz, an associate professor at the University of Colorado Denver's Urban and Regional Planning Department. Over the course of the last 20 years, Carrie's research has examined how public investments, development, and public policies affect human development. Quite a bit of Carrie's research has honed in on affordable housing, including how the built environment affects families' daily lives. Hi, Carrie. Thanks for sitting with me today. Hi, Caitlin. Thank you for having me for this important conversation. Let's dive right in on this. So Carrie, when we talk about good design for affordable housing, what does that mean to you? Good design, as you discussed in your article, entails at least three aspects of the housing. First, it involves the interior design, such as the finishes, the layout, and the size of the unit. The second is the exterior, which includes both the design of the home or the building, as well as the landscaping amenities and connectivity to the neighborhood and transportation options. The third is the location, both the immediate neighborhood location and the location within the city and region. The design of each of these is really important because when people are at home, that's they need good design in order to be productive, safe, renewed each day, and healthy. So that they're, and therefore their homes have to be comfortable, safe, functional, and durable. And people also need easy access to other places that are just as important as their home. So convenient and affordable transportation options are essential. And ideally, the house is um, proximate to schools, jobs, healthcare, groceries, parks, social services, and other services. So federally subsidized housing has been around in the U.S. since 1937. Has thinking changed around what constitutes good design for affordable housing? Yes, it has, um, especially within the last 30 years since the HOPE-6 program in 1993. And that program replaced several, several um, distressed properties with new mixed-income developments. 
Um, while that was and still is a controversial program, since it often results in fewer affordable units um, and therefore displacement of residents from their communities and their homes, it did stress the importance of good design. Um, prior to HOPE 6 and since then, designers, affordable housing developers, researchers, um, and others have been in agreement that those three broad elements I just discussed, um, the interior, the exterior, and the location, are really important. But the problem is, is we've lacked consistent, strong um, federal policy on funding the development of new affordable housing. And so even though the knowledge is there on the importance of good design, it isn't always supported by funding levels. So one of the projects that people point to when they want to illustrate poor design of affordable housing is Cabrini Green in Chicago. It was these mid and high rise buildings with some 15,000 people living them in them at one point. Can you talk to me about some of the reasons why high rises like Cabrini Green, the pink houses in New York, and the Pruitt Igo project in Missouri didn't work? Design is definitely at the root of the failure of these developments, as is poor maintenance, and maybe even more importantly, it was maintenance. Um, but originally, also that maintenance and the poor upkeep of these buildings was also related to the original design. Um, so the high-rise sections of those three developments you mentioned were all constructed between the late 1950s and the early 1960s. Um, at that time, uh, low-cost urban housing in these large cities was really poorly constructed and um, resembled the early tenements in the early, the late part of the 1800s and early part of the 1900s. We're just, we were just coming out of post-world, or coming out of World War II. GIs needed housing, the baby boomers were being born, cities were losing population to the suburbs, and so they were willing to take a lot of federal money to build a lot of new housing to increase all this increasing demand, um, increase housing for the increasing demand. There was also at that time a, a strong belief in this kind of clean, sleek, modernist design that influenced the, um, the development and design of a lot of urban renewal projects. And the idea was to get rid of all of the clutter and mix of housing and building types that were built earlier on in the century and late 18th, 19th century. Um, but there was a lot of new um, high-rise development at that time, and a lot of those buildings still exist in New York and Chicago, and they're still luxury um, because they were maintained properly, but they were also developed and designed properly. So if we think about those three elements again, um, first, internally, the units were cheaply constructed and not maintained. So they weren't durable. Internal circulation was terrible. Elevators were often broken. Stairwells weren't maintained. They could be unsafe, poorly lit, um, trash accumulated in them. The balconies weren't designed for safety or relaxation or fresh air. Uh, I worked on a project in Chicago to identify funding for infrastructure for the replacement housing of Cabrini Green. We went to the Chicago Housing Authority offices and there were binders full of numerous um, maintenance logs that documented leaks, mold, um, broken mechanical systems for the buildings, broken appliances in the units, unsafe playground equipment. And so both the buildings were originally cheaply constructed to cut costs, to get them quickly built and um, stay within budget, but then they weren't maintained because, again, that the federal purpose of affordable housing has never been consistent and clear. Funding comes and bursts, and then it goes away. And so much like our transit system, we have money and capital to build the rail, but we don't always have the money to operate it. And it's the same is true for these expensive to maintain high-rise developments. 
externally they were a failure because there was nothing active surrounding these buildings. They consumed huge areas, you know, numerous acres with few things for the residents to do. There weren't places to sit. There was little few things. Um, there weren't many playgrounds uh, later, like boys and girls clubs and things uh, built and um, raised money to build like ballparks and other activities, but mostly it was concrete, sidewalks, and grass that was poorly maintained. So it wasn't even safe and fun to play in the grass because then they would also, like if it was a large enough segment of grass, it would be cut by a sidewalk. Um, so there was, there was nothing much to do outside of the units. Um, and then because the blocks were so large and all it was was housing, there weren't really neighborhoods surrounding or within these developments. And so you didn't have access People who lived there didn't have convenient access to other things. Um, uh, like in Cabrini Green, it was a long walk to get out of the development to a train stop or to other stores, and eventually everything left the neighborhood. And so the closest things were liquor stores, manufacturers, small scale like tool and die shops and um, warehouses. So if you're th thinking about thousands of people living in units that are on these large blocks that didn't foster a neighborhood environment, um, they were uh, internally focused, they didn't easily connect to the rest of the city, um, you're not going to feel recharged each day um, in those units. And you're not going to easily be able to get to skills and training and good education so that you can obtain a well-paying job. Many residents in those developments had jobs, but um, it was hard to get to them, and also they weren't given the services and skills and training that they needed to continue to get better jobs. I have to imagine, too, that as a parent, having children in a building like this had to be incredibly difficult. If we're talking about a high-rise that's 25 or 30 stories high, and you're, you have children with you and groceries, the design of that is just it can't possibly be conducive to easily moving about with your family and bringing things like that in. Exactly, living within the units was just undignified because you had leaky ceilings and mold and thin walls and broken appliances and heating and cooling systems that were always broken and windows that you didn't want to leave open because you were so high up off the ground and they could be safety hazards. Children have fallen off the out of, uh, off the walkways that they eventually put in, you know, dark fencing material. So then it even felt like a prison because now the walkways had these unattractive and um, kind of claustrophobic fencing systems around them. Um, you know, it wasn't healthy. Kids probably had asthma um, and then just no place to get out their energy. And then, like you said, to get easily get to a grocery store or their children's school or a playground was difficult. You either had to, the elevators were broken, you had to go up and down the stairs. There's stories and books that have been written about it of people waiting, you know, 20 minutes for an elevator because they couldn't walk up 10, 15 flights of stairs. I think I had read about one of the uh, developments that was in Chicago, I believe, and the elevators often just didn't work, period. Mm -hmm. And so it was a stairwell or nothing. I read a piece in the New York Times recently that was about these floodlights that had been put into some of the affordable housing projects in, I think, New York, possibly. Um, and it was, but the people in the development were talking about how it's not comfortable to live with floodlights on Absolutely. all the time, even though the floodlights were intended to provide more safety. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but it's it's a very odd fix. It comes across as a very odd fix to to provide safety to people to just flood their entire area with with light constantly, twenty four hours a day. Yeah, no, it's very inhospitable, and it's not the type of situation most people or anybody would want to live in. Um, you know, where you constantly hear leaks and um, and and you're surrounded, like you said, by floodlights, and you can't sleep at night because it's flooding into your apartment, and you don't have proper blinds or shades and it goes back a lot to not having consistent levels of funding for maintenance that and especially for buildings like that that were so expensive to maintain one because they're, they're large and two because they were poorly constructed due to cost cutting you know at the last minute you're listening to unaffordable a podcast collaboration between boulder weekly and kgnu i'm caitlin rocket Today we're talking to Carrie McCarowitz, an associate professor at the University of Colorado Denver's Urban and Regional Planning Department, about how the design of affordable housing can contribute to a better quality of life. Let's get into a little bit of the research that you've done specifically in your career. Um, you've interviewed lots of folks in Chicago, California, and here in Boulder County. Um, and also in Denver County, about affordable housing. I know you've talked to landlords and to tenants um, of affordable housing units and developments to other uh, city residents and to city officials about different affordable housing projects. And the the whole purpose is to see what works and what doesn't work from everybody's perspective. So let's talk about the design of some of these local properties um, and what you found works for people and what doesn't. Uh, you would talk to me about about West Denver generally as kind of a, a region. Um, you've had conversations with residents and nonprofit organizations in Sun Valley, Val Verde, and some of the other neighborhoods in West Denver. What are some of the things that you took away from those conversations? Um, in, in many cases, the, the community is really strong. Um, and even if the housing wasn't uh, no longer as healthy to live in um, and easy to maintain by the housing authority, especially the Sun Valley homes, because there's a school there um, and many families have lived there a while and the, the buildings were lower rise. They were able, they were coming and going more easily and not missing each other in, you know, high, high rise stairwells. So they knew each other pretty well. Um, the, uh, the location of Sun Valley on a map is good, but it's also pretty isolated from other amenities. So it's, you know, it's all housing owned and operated by the Denver Housing Authority. Um, it's surrounded by federal, which is not a, a great walking environment. It's hard to cross, if not impossible to cross at certain spots. Um, to the east is the river, but it's not always safe there until they've been making improvements to the to the trail a lot, and they have a community garden. Um, and so there were many positive things about it, but um, you know, talking to uh, people who worked on the housing redevelopment plans that there, you know, the interior air quality in these units was not healthy because of the, um, in some cases, mold or um, uh, it's not so much the area, Denver, as you can hear from my voice, <laughs> we have pretty <laughs> equally bad air quality around the city. Um, you know, Crime is an issue in all neighborhoods. Um, in some neighborhoods, it seems that people uh, encounter it more often. Um, either their neighborhood is a target or there are fewer people watching on the street, so it, it happens more easily. Um, or there, are, there are more people in need of things. 
um, which can lead to theft. Um, I mean, there's a lot of initiatives going on, but then at the same time, we're facing gentrification pressures. And so we're not building enough affordable housing in West Denver. And some of the affordable housing we have is is quickly disappearing. And so, when you say gentrification issues, in, I mean, I think people probably know what that means to some degree, but how is that affecting the way that we're building or not building affordable housing? One pressure, especially increasingly in West Denver, but we also see pockets of it in, in Park Hill and heading out toward the airport and um, North Denver, is the, um, the movement of corporations, small and large, into investment in single-family homes as rental properties. And so the more that these large, uh, you know, either local or out-of-state or out-of-country companies invest in our housing stock, it increases the the demand and therefore the uh, the supply is not increasing, so land values go up. Um, and when land values go up, it becomes increasingly harder for nonprofits and the housing authority to acquire the land to build affordable housing. So you now have this other actor in the housing markets, no longer individuals acquiring homes with their incomes, it's corporations with large balance sheets purchasing several homes. And then when they own several rental properties, they can control the rent because it's almost a monopoly in a neighborhood that um, they don't need, they can collude with themselves <laughs> and continue <laughs> to raise the rent on all the nearby properties um, and set the terms on the on the lease agreement. But mostly it really puts pressure on the on the supply and therefore the land prices and it's hard to acquire properties then for affordability. Well, and if you have an organization like say Google that comes into Boulder, it also brings in, um, a lot of people, a lot of employees who are, and I can't say across the board, but a lot of people who are probably fairly well paid, and it sort of changes the landscape in general just of who is in town, what the sort of economic situation is for people in town, and you know that's actually one of the other things that I we're going to talk about in our series is about corporations coming in and and how that can either help or hurt the affordable housing stock. Now, that'll be important to touch on, especially in Boulder, with their cap on housing and population, but not a cap on jobs. Yeah, right. <laughs> Talking about Boulder, uh, one of the other developments that you and I have talked about uh, in our previous conversations is Josephine Commons, and that's in Lafayette. That's a 153 rental units of apartment-style housing, and that's for seniors and multifamily units for families with eligible incomes. Uh, tell me a little bit more about the research that you did there and what came of it. Yeah, we studied six developments in Boulder County and Boulder in the city. Um, and that was one of the six. And it's actually called Aspen Wall and Josephine Commons because um, Josephine Commons is the three-story uh, apartment complex for older adults or seniors. And then the Aspen Wall portion wraps around that three-story building uh, with 72 townhomes and duplexes. And it's for people who earn up to 60% of the Boulder County area median income. So that's roughly translates a few years ago to people earning um, at the most 40000 to 60000 depending if they were a one or four person household. And we were studying these developments to see if some of the concerns that neighborhoods had expressed prior to their development had actually come true. Um, you know, the, some of the typical uh, concerns are noise, traffic, parking, uh, deterioration of the buildings, uh, poor design or aesthetics of the buildings, uh, loitering, 
of people um, on and off the property. Uh, can't remember if I've already mentioned parking. Um, <laughs> so, so we studied these developments as thoroughly as we could. We looked at data. We went on site several times. Um, and this one, you know, to, to again reiterate the three aspects of affordable housing. Um, this development on the interior, really high quality units, um, all ADA and um, intended to accommodate seniors in the in the Josephine Commons depart or air, uh, development, and then uh, individuals and families in the townhomes and duplexes. So what we heard from people is that the interiors were well designed. We did hear one resident who thought they could have been. Um, the appliances could have been a little nicer and some of the um, the walls thicker so they didn't hear their neighbors as often um, and they weren't happy with the location. But the other person we heard from that lived there loved everything that the other person had complained about. So you mentioned <laughs> earlier on that context is so important. And so not only the context of the neighborhood and the development, but also the the style of development for the person living in it. You know, mm -hmm. people who have lower incomes are heterogeneous, just like the rest of us. <laughs> there are people who uh, have higher incomes. They have different tastes, preferences, and needs. Um, the immediate exterior of the development, it's really pleasant. There's wonderful landscaping, places to sit, several activities. They have raised vegetable gardens. It's a really large and nice uh, playground. There's walking trails, lots of bike racks, and we saw people biking with uh, kids in tow and um, it connects to open space and they extended the trail to the open space so that the rest of the neighborhood also had better access to the open space. Um, neighbors that live nearby come through the development and to access the open space. When we were there, we didn't see trash or excessive noise or speeding cars or unleashed pets or loitering on and around the development. Um, externally, it, it uh, that's probably the one... Uh, aspect of this development that could have been better designed. And that's what we heard the most from when we interviewed neighbors that in the surrounding area. They really wanted it to connect to the street grid, um, even though it's a largely single family development or neighborhood surrounding this newer development. It is on a grid. It's smaller homes, although some are being replaced with larger homes. Um, and they really wanted it to you know, fit within the neighborhood. Uh, but because it was multifamily, the city's parking or its parking requirements and also fire codes required a lot more internal parking and circulation. Also for the seniors because of uh, the need to get in there with ambulances and and fire uh, trucks in, in, for emergency calls. So the the nearby neighbors were not thrilled with the design in terms of the street connectivity. To them, it felt like this disconnected island of this big, large suburban style apartment development dropped in their neighborhood. Not so much the exterior uh, duplexes and townhomes that face the, the neighborhood street, but the interior. And if you look at it from an aerial view, there are these large kind of, there's a large sea of parking mm -hmm. in front of the, the senior building. And, and and after that, the housing authority did a parking study, and it's definitely overparked. Mm. have a lot more parking spaces than than are required, and mm. so, um, you know, it, it's it's hard to get all the design requirements on the same page. Right. <laughs> Those for, for you know the architect and the housing authority, what the neighbors wanted, what the city 
has in their you know zoning and building codes and then what the fire department um, and the infrastructure department re re um, require for safety and things and some of those codes probably should be updated when you're developing something like that so you know communication with neighbors is important um, they also would like more communication with the residents and the property managers because now they have one can big development at the corner of their neighborhood um, and they just would like to be able to talk to the on-site manager more often but most people we talked to thought it was fine many many of them knew people who lived there and their kids had become friends and overall they were they thought it was a good design um, they, they just ironically you know some neighborhoods don't are not as uh, welcoming to affordable housing, but this neighborhood said that, that they really wanted it to fit better with the neighborhood rather than being isolated and feeling kind of separate. One of the other, um, this is actually two properties in Boulder. It's it's Broadway East and West, and those are actually two, two separate uh, developments. So Broadway East is a Section 8 community in Boulder. And Broadway West is a mix of affordable rentals where Section 8 housing choice vouchers are available. Um, what did your research tell you about those particular developments? Yeah, and that's a nice follow-up to this other one. And I'll, I should just add with that one other of the um, aspects of the Aspen Wall and Josephine Commons in terms of its location within the city and region is some felt it needed better transportation options. The nearest bus stop on Baseline Road is over a half mile away, so it's hard to walk there because Baseline Road's not that safe to walk on at that location. Mm -hmm. But others, most, you know, many of the people who are working and live in that development, of course, have cars, like almost everybody else in Boulder. Right. And um, the location regionally is good for their access to either work in Boulder or Lafayette or Broomfield. Or, um, so again, it's contextual. Um, it's it's a good location for people who are working and driving. It's uh, less amenable to people who are reliant on other, on other modes. Though they do have uh, transit that comes to the senior center provided by VIA. So conversely, Broadway East and West are right in the heart of Boulder on Broadway. Um, the first part that you mentioned was built much earlier in the 80s. And then uh, about 30 years later, they built the other um, the Broadway West. Mm -hmm. And these are a few stories, um, and you know they they really fit with the context of the neighborhood. We interviewed several neighbors that live nearby. None of them felt like it was out of context. They felt like it connected well with the neighborhood. The higher rise, multifamily style fronts Broadway, which is appropriate for a commercial corridor. And those are those are I think I've seen before. They're they're the brick faced buildings correct and it's like a, a very light sort of stone work on those buildings mm -hmm. that it I, you know I think does look a lot like the area in there yeah they paid a lot of attention to the newer design and at the same time they rehabbed the earlier uh, the Broadway East mm -hmm. um, and many people in the neighborhood uh, mentioned that they appreciated the upgrade to the older units and thought the new units also looked really nice and it's right shares a parking lot with the Boulder Recreation Center um, it's in front of a bus stop uh, there is parking, um, but we saw tons of bikes in the development. So people are, and it, there's a bike lane nearby. So people are definitely able to walk and bike and take transit and use their cars. Um, and we didn't hear a lot, um, you know, many, if any, negative things about the development from the surrounding neighborhood. 
so that one, the location is key. And it's also just two and three bedroom apartments. So the size allows for families to live there. Yeah, I think I would say that the design of that apartment suits uh, both the neighborhood and the people living there, especially for accessing jobs and education and grocery stores. One of the other projects that you wanted to talk with me about is uh, Woodlands in Boulder. Um, so this is a central Boulder location, um, and this is at 2685 Mapleton. Um, it's a 35-unit complex, and it operates in partnership with Boulder County's Family Self-Sufficiency Program. Tell me more about that one. This is a really interesting one. It's definitely built for families. Um, it's low-rise development in, I would say, sort of like a U-shape and actually even a square because at the the north end, um, it's a building, I believe, Head Start as well as the Family Self-Sufficiency Center operates out of there. So they have on-site child care and other social services around this small-scale um development and then in the internal part has a playground for the kids that all of the homes face inward toward the playground um when we interviewed people in the surrounding neighborhood they said they hardly knew it existed and that it was there um it's a great location in terms of people being able to access uh other streets that have activities and there's a bike lane nearby uh it's not far from broadway and uh Having the social services there on site is really important, especially for families with young kids who need childcare, aftercare, after school, um, assistance with accessing programs such as SNAP or um, job training programs. And so the idea is that the people who are living in the units um, also have assistance with other aspects of their lives. So in addition to the stable, affordable housing, they're also being supported in um uh, getting training or other things they need to obtain jobs while also having childcare for their kids. I think that kind of ties into the next question, um, which is how does good design play into economic mobility? Does it play into economic mobility? No, I think it really does. And it's not so much like the paint color or, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, the type of appliance in the units, although those are very important. Um, if we think about what economic mobility is, the policy, the Bell Policy Center uh, describes it as an, an individual's how an individual's economic well-being changes over time. And the idea is if your income goes up or down, you're either upwardly mobile or downwardly mobile. Um, but if we think about income, the reason your income needs to increase is a couple of reasons. One, the cost of living goes up, including our biggest expense of housing. And two, the more types of things we can purchase, the more we can raise our quality of life, whether we can purchase more nutritional food, uh, higher education, extra programming for our kids, better health care, um, a nicer environment inside our home, a more reliable car. And so when your income goes up, it allows you to afford those other things that allow us to take on higher paying jobs and also take care of our own health and well-being and have a good quality of life. Uh, but also if we can control the costs um, uh, that we're experiencing, then even if our income is not greatly increasing, you can st still be, if not economically mobile, economically stable. Um, and I think that is an important uh, a goal as well, because right now, as our homelessness problem increases, as people experiencing homelessness, the number grows every day. Um, that's economic instability, right? And even people, you know, many people who are 
um, unhoused do have jobs, but the housing is just out of their reach. Um, and so in terms of the design, the design of being located in a good location, um, the design of feeling like you're safe when you're at home and that you, uh, you know, in contrast to what we talked about, Cabrini Green, that you're, you know, you can feel rested in your home. You can feel safe. You can sleep at night. You don't have those floodlights in your windows. Mm-hmm. Um, all of those things allow you to be recharged and get up every day and keep going, get, taking your kids to school, getting to your job on time, dealing with stressful situations. Um, it all, we have, you know, for people who are living in comfortable and safe housing, we know how much that's a refuge for us each day when we're done with our work and um, need to continue with all the different things we have to do on a daily, weekly, and monthly basis. One of the things that you and I talked about when we talked for the written part of this series, and this is going to be antithetical to sort of the American idea, but um, we talked about how um, home ownership is not the panacea for economic mobility. And I wanted to give you a chance to, to talk a little bit about that. We've put so much money into home ownership for people in the U.S. I mean, the biggest, one of our biggest entitlement programs um, is the mortgage income tax deduction that homeowners get to deduct from their um, you know, individual income tax every year if they're paying interest on a mortgage. It's a huge expense to the federal government that uh, diverts funding from other, other sources. So Yes, yeah, so we put a lot of uh, pressure on home ownership as like the single best wealth creation strategy for households in the U.S. But um, that's because we don't have other ways of people raising their income. We don't have, maybe, you know, there's policies now to make community college free or and there's pressure on, you know, institutions of higher education to keep tuition costs low. Um, you know, there's there's more discussion about job training programs and workforce agencies. And so helping people to raise their incomes should be another equal strategy in terms of economic mobility and building wealth and having enough money to put into your retirement so that you can live um, you know, safely, safely and healthfully at your older age, um, not just being able to cash out on a home that appreciated a lot during your lifetime. If we're keeping costs low and we're helping incomes to increase, home ownership doesn't have to be the only way uh, people can obtain attain uh, economic mobility. Well, it feels very backwards right now in America where those who don't have the money to buy a home are forced to rent, but rents are very high and keep going up. And it feels very much like it locks people into sort of a never-ending situation. And there's, it just seems very backwards. (laughs) (laughs) No, it definitely does. Um, And again, you know, the rent increases are again due to, you know, especially in our region, but in many other places, we have several things that impact the the rents in our region. One of them being uh, for a long time, we were not building new condo developments. Mm -hmm. And so that housing, kind of what they call the filtering process, if people can't move from an apartment to a condo and eventually from a condo to a single family home, um, they're stuck in apartments. I shouldn't say stuck because that's still a very viable uh, solution. But if their incomes are increasing and they're able to afford more rent, landlords know that. (laughs) And collectively, rents have increased because people who are renting them and it's not that they're a large share of the market, but it seems that a lot of developers and these new apartment buildings are 
kind of all chasing that same small share of the population that has higher income, but not uh, there's not enough supply to buy. And so they're putting it toward rent, which then increases the rent out of um, out of range for people who are not in that situation and need more affordable rents. And we also don't have enough money to subsidize more affordable housing. Carrie, thank you for joining me today. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. Watch for your reporting on this topic. Thank you. You've been listening to Unaffordable, a podcast collaboration between Boulder Weekly and KGNU. I'm Caitlin Rocket. Today's guest was Carrie McCarowitz, an associate professor at the University of Colorado Denver's Urban and Regional Planning Department. You can read the entire written series at boulderweekly.com, but don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode.